before I introduce you to Alex Harris um, and let him help us think Christianly about politics, um, I want to introduce our topic um, and just give us a little theological foundation. Did anyone lose any friends or strain any relationships or lose any family members due to politics in the last five years? Anyone? Show of hands, yeah. Yeah, just about everyone. Okay, so it's in 2022, I think it's safe to say we live in a politicized world. But not only that, we, we live in an extremely polarized world, and it's only getting more and more polarized. Where you are told to, to cling to a tribe and to hate the other side. To, to, to plant your flag, your allegiance with either the donkey or the elephant. I, I, I recently heard Russell Moore, um, he shared a Barna uh, study. And, and in it, it was, especially as a, as a pastor, it was kind of mind-blowing. Um, but he said, early in, in 2021, so after that crazy year we had of 2020, but, but early in 2021, 29% of pastors want to quit ministry. 29%. Later on in the year, so October the same year, that number's up to 38%. March of this year, 43%. Almost half of pastors are over ministry. And it's not because of sermon prep and, and hospital visits or, or a doubt of calling. Political Division is actually near the top of the list. Now, Alex will probably have a better definition for politics, but one author I read says, quote, political simply means the activities associated with the organization and governance of people. It has to do with rulership and who has the right to order our lives. It is what happens in the public domain. Or to quote Augustine, politics is people bound together by common loves. Politics answers questions like, how do we live together? How do we handle our money? Treat our, our neighbors and our enemies? Um, it answers questions of authority. It even answers questions of love, who we can love. What it means to be human. How to form communities do justice. We can go on and on and on. Namely, politics is a big deal for us as a church to think about because quite frankly, though Christianity is not partisan, Christianity is not partisan, it is extremely political. Jesus made a political announcement when he declared himself to be king. King Herod, for instance, didn't kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem because a new self-help teacher was born or a spiritual guru was on the horizon. No, he killed them because a new king had arrived. When Jesus died, if it was only due to blasph blasphemy, the Jews, according to their law, they could have had him stoned. But what was the sign written above his head on the cross. King of the Jews. When the early church would confess Jesus is Lord, they, in saying that, were also saying Caesar is 
not. And likewise, as Christians in in 2022, we also have a king. One ultimate ruler whom we are called to be loyal to, to give our allegiance to. But we're dual citizens, and this is where it gets sticky. This is why Alex is with us tonight, right? We're, We're citizens of heaven, but we're also citizens of the United States. And how shall we live? New Testament scholar Patrick Schreiner in his wonderful new book called Political Gospel says, quote, no matter what you think about what happened from 2016 to 2021 in America, the evidence suggests churches have failed to disciple people in the realm of political engagement. Many are leaving churches over politics before they will leave their politics for a church. Ouch, right? We, as your elders at Redemption Parker, we don't want to fail in this extremely important area of discipleship. This is one of the reasons you're constantly hearing from the pulpit that, that, that not only does Jesus save you individually, from your sins, which can feel very private, but that also Jesus is our saving King who who reigns and rules right now, which feels extremely public. We, the church, are the colony of heaven amidst this country of death. We are the outposts of God's kingdom. But like we know here, we're, we're also exiles in Babylon. So, so how shall we do politics? That's our question. That's why we have Alex here. So thank you. I'm, so, I'm so sorry if I, I set up that with some pressure on you. But uh, um, let me give a quick intro. Alex is married to Courtney. Is that right? And they have a 10-year-old daughter named Audrey and two dogs. He lives downtown. Um, Alex graduated from Harvard Law School. Harvard Law School. Magna cum laude. I had to ask Holly what that means. I had to, I had to look up how to pronounce it. It definitely doesn't say that on any of my diplomas. <laughs> he, he, he's clerked in the Supreme Court for two justices, and now he's a lawyer in Denver. Alex is also an author, and, and, uh, and the foreword to one of his books is written by Chuck Norris himself, right? That it doesn't get cooler than that. So welcome to Theology on the Ground, Alex. Thanks so much, Rick, and, and thank you all for, for being here. I feel a little intimidated by the, the framing of this conversation and, and the intro that Rick just gave because uh, these, are, these are really complicated, heavy, uh, difficult topics um, and also very emotional and personal topics. And uh, no one, uh, a pastor, much less a, a guy called in uh, from outside to, to talk on it, has all the answers or the final answer you know, on these topics. Um, but I'm really excited to be here. I'm really glad uh, that the church is, is discipling uh, in this area because so often uh, 
so many Christians in America come to church on Sunday mornings, uh, and then the whole rest of the week they're being bombarded with other messages and other influences, and, and they don't know, even if they're hearing the gospel faithfully preached in the pulpit on Sunday mornings, uh, they're, they're having conversations with coworkers, they're having conversations with family members, uh, they're watching uh, the news, they're listening to talk radio, they're, they're scrolling through social media, and all of these messages and, and things can be very confusing, and, and they need, um, we need, we all need to be discipled when it comes to how do we take the truth of Christianity, the truth of the gospel, and apply it to these very, um, these very weighty and complicated issues um, of our day. So excited to be here and, and excited to talk about this. Yes, awesome. And before we get into the confusing, weighty topics, um, let me begin by, by asking just if you can tell us a little bit about yourself. You have quite the story, and, and what are you doing now as a lawyer? Yeah, I, I will share a little bit more of my story just because I think uh, to come in here and try to pontificate on, on how to, to do politics faithfully as, as believers um, kind of requires a little bit of trust and, and sense of where is this guy coming from. And so um, with your indulgence, I'll try to share maybe a little bit more than your typical just like brief, here's who I am. Uh, I grew up in a Christian ministry family uh, in the Pacific Northwest. My parents, Greg and Sono Harris, were pioneers of the early Christian homeschooling movement in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, almost 200,000 families uh, were launched into homeschooling through my, especially my dad's, uh, homeschool workshops in the, the 80s and 90s. Uh, my oldest brother, Joshua Harris, uh, wrote a best-selling book uh, in evangelical circles in the late 90s called I Kiss Dating Goodbye which kind of single-handedly shaped how a lot of evangelicals view sex and dating and relationships and became the senior pastor of a very large and and influential church at the head of a much larger church network um, called Sovereign Grace Ministries uh, just outside of D.C. And uh, my twin brother, Brett, and I, we kind of grew up in the shadow uh, of those family members, Healthy. you know, where almost everyone that we knew uh, was homeschooled because of our dad, <laughs> and they weren't allowed to date because of our brother. <laughs> so, awesome. and, and, you know, for, for a lot of people, you know, that could just kind of feel like this big weight and burden. Um, I think in God's kindness, we viewed it more as, hey, you know, mom, dad, Josh, like they're clearly imperfect, you know, fallen people just like us. If God can use them, mm. you know, to do big things, you know, he can use us too. Um, and, and there was a, a kernel of, of healthy, healthiness in that. Uh, there's probably also a kernel of, of kind of pride and, and, and the sense of destiny that, you know, God's going to use us and, and whatever we do is going to be great. Um, but we followed in, in their footsteps. So when we were 16 years old, uh, my twin brother and I started our own kind of nonprofit parachurch ministry organization called The Revolution, which uh, is exactly the kind of, of name for an organization you'd expect two 16-year-old guys uh, to come up with. Uh, it's a word we made up. We defined it as uh, a teenage rebellion against low expectations. And we were encouraging our peers to uh, rebel against what we call the myth of adolescence, this idea that the teen years are just this time to goof off and have fun and and real life starts afterwards, that God can't use you until you're married with kids uh, to say, hey, no, step outside your comfort zone, do hard things for the glory of God and, and start today. 
And through that, we were able to travel the country, uh, speak, uh, write a couple of books, including one uh, called Do Hard Things, which uh, for a time was very successful, probably because Chuck Norris wrote the foreword to it. And um, we were kind of in our corner of the evangelical kind of world subculture. Uh, we were kind of miniature celebrities for, for a time. And uh, again, in God's kindness, we were given some wise counsel and encouraged to, uh, to kind of step off the fast track and to go to college, which was a big deal because we were homeschooled all the way through high school. Uh, no one in our family had graduated from college. College was kind of viewed as this uh, waste of time, waste of money, uh, when you could just go out and, and do stuff, which is what we'd been doing since we were 16. Uh, but we were encouraged to, to go to college, and, and, and we did, and, and were able to suddenly you know, revert back to the role of the student rather than the teacher on stage, uh, able to learn that even though we'd written a book, we didn't know how to write a college essay. And that was humbling. You know, getting those first, uh, first papers back with all the red ink all over and a, a grade that you were not expecting to get. Uh, and that was just so healthy and, and good. Uh, so that was, that was part of, of the story. But, but as we talk about politics here, um, another kind of aspect of, of growing up uh, in our background is that my twin brother and I were on the vanguard of what was known in homeschool circles as the Joshua generation. And the Joshua generation was this concept kind of named after the Old Testament patriarch uh, that uh, Moses uh, obviously led the children of Israel out of of slavery in Egypt, uh, but Joshua was the one who conquered the promised land and brought the next generation of the children of Israel into into their, their permanent place, into their permanent home. And in this analogy, you know, our parents' generation, kind of the first generation of people homeschooling their children at home out of religious conviction, they were Moses. And they had fled the, you know, the godless public school system and a decaying popular culture to literally sometimes uh, raise their children in the wilderness. Uh, but the idea was that our generation, the Joshua generation, we would rise up and we would assume positions of power and influence because of the superior education that we've received, because of the training in biblical worldview and Christian apologetics and speech and debate, uh, that we would be uh, disproportionately the presidents and the senators and the Supreme Court justices. And this was not uh, ironic. This was not just, you know, all parents think their kids are going to be president someday. This was uh, a bit more of a, of a real vision of this is what God is doing through our decision uh, to homeschool. And and uh, Brett and I basically followed that blueprint um, all the way through. So we were uh, national champion debaters in high school before we started our nonprofit organization. We were active in local and state uh, level campaigns all the way through high school. And when we were 19 years old, during the 2008 uh, Republican presidential primary, um, we started this organization for uh, former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee who at the time reflected to us a real refreshing new voice and perspective. He was the the evangelical uh, candidate, the former pastor. Uh, So we built up this 20,000-member grassroots volunteer army online for him uh, with campaign coordinators in 49 of the 50 states and and really provided some of the infrastructure uh, for his uh, campaign, which started as kind of a nobody and quickly became a dark horse for the nomination. And, and because of that, uh, we found ourselves inducted 
kind of into the heart of the religious right uh, to the conservative Christian movement. Uh, so at age 19, we were became members of the Council for National Policy, which is kind of the who's who of social conservatism in America, uh, founded by people like Jerry Falwell and James Dobson uh, and, and many other names that you know and, and other names that most people have never heard of but who were you know, truly the movers and shakers behind a lot of the evangelical political engagement uh, that we've seen for the last you know, 40, 50 years. Uh, so that was kind of all part of, of, our, of my background and growing up. And so going to college was meant as a path uh, towards pursuing that vision. Uh, even going to law school was, was part of my kind of continuing to, to follow that path. Uh, clerking at the Supreme Court. Uh, I clerked uh, first for uh, Judge Gorsuch when he was a judge here in, in Denver, uh, and then for Justice Anthony Kennedy at the Supreme Court. And to be a conservative, homeschool, you know, Christian graduate, clerking for the swing justice of the United States Supreme Court, that was literally a fulfillment of the, the Joshua Generation vision. Um, and I was kind of in that position, uh, kind of in the midst of the 2016 election and the aftermath of that and the appointment of my old boss, uh, Justice Gorsuch, to the court. And through all of this, God was continuing to speak to me through his word, continuing to speak to me through membership in, in some great local churches. And uh, I've been talking for a very long time, so I'll, I'll oh, try no, to... No, 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 you keep going. I, I'm telling... I was asking Mark to close the door. It's freezing. <laughs> Sorry. You keep... This is awesome. You keep going. <laughs> yeah. and, and so th- throughout, you know, throughout that time, you know, I, I was continuing to be fed and, and discipled um, and to read God's word and, and to be, thankfully, as a law clerk, you're, you're not allowed to be politically uh, involved because that's a conflict of interest. It's, it reflects poorly on the judiciary. And so I was sidelined for the first time in my life. I couldn't, couldn't be involved and just watching kind of front row seat to uh, the judicial nomination confirmation battle over Justice Gorsuch, uh, front row seat to uh, some of the shenanigans that go on uh, behind the scenes, both in in the law and in politics in D.C. And through all of that, um, and and we'll probably get into more of this, so I won't give give it all uh, in this this first long spiel, uh, but through it all, I, I really began to question some of that Joshua Generation vision, uh, which was really a vision to, to seek to, pers- uh, to advance the kingdom of God through earthly power, um, to question whether you know, God needed me to save America, first of all, um, but, but second, whether that should you know, be my goal and our goal as a church uh, in the first place. And, and it's been now you know, five years of, of practicing as a, as a lawyer uh, in private practice, continuing to, to think and reflect and pray on a lot of these things um, as, as the country has continued to, to wrestle with them. Um, and all of those experiences, though, uh, really inform my, my thinking now on what it means um, as we see you know, a lot of the dynamics of recent years are, are the outgrowth of things 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. These are not new dynamics. They're, they're exacerbated uh, by current, our current cultural moment. Wow. Thank you for that answer. That, that, and they for kind of setting a foundation for your story um, as we jump into yeah, your, your views now on, on how we engage the political realm as, as Christians. Um, 
first question I want to ask you, and we'll save our questions this time. Normally, we kind of have uh, you know thoughts and questions in between maybe every question if we have a whole panel up here. But with Alex, we'll kind of save our questions until the very end. Um, but first questions would be some, some would say that theology and politics don't belong together in the same room. Um, we believe that, that our, our theology should inform everything we do. So, so Alex, can you explain to us how your theology actually informs everything you do in politics? Yeah, well, first, I agree with you. Uh, theology should inform everything we do um, because theology is the study of God, who, who he is, uh, who we are in relationship to him. Um, and, and, you know, we can't as Christians, you know, leave our theology behind either, uh, either we have a theology and it informs what we're doing or, or we are, you know, we, we lack a theology, uh, as we engage. And, and that is itself, you know, a theological expression. It is a, a theological application um, in its absence. And so, you know, yes, we, we need theology to inform our politics. And, and that goes, you know, to the deepest questions of, of political philosophy. You know, the, the fact that all people are created in God's image, the Imago Dei, is a foundational truth that informs uh, much of, of kind of Western Judeo-Christian values that, that undergird our constitution, undergird, undergird our rights as a country. Um, certainly, the Bible speaks on principles that uh, apply to every policy topic you could possibly think about, and, and I won't uh, try to dive in too deep there because because much smarter people have given much more thought to those kind of specific issues. Um, but when I think about, you know, how, how does theology inform our politics, uh, especially in recent years, what I've reflected on, uh, really three, three kind of core ways. Um, the first is, is our theology needs to inform where we put our hope. Um, as Christians, uh, our hope is not in uh, politics. Our, our hope is not in uh, policies or politicians or parties or earthly power. Um, Rick touched on this already, but you know we're described as believers in Scripture repeatedly as as exiles or sojourners in a foreign land. Uh, we're we're explicitly described as ambassadors for Christ. That means uh, you know an ambassador is someone who who's from another country. Uh, and is present in in a current country that is not their true home uh, as a representative of that of that other country, and so we are representatives of Christ in the way that we engage in politics, but our ultimate hope is not in this world where we find ourselves now it 's in a future coming kingdom, and so our hope can never be in politics. Uh, second, our theology must inform kind of our, our purpose and our motivation. Mm. Um, again, Rick did a, an excellent job talking about this in his, his introduction. Uh, but, but we have to care about politics because politics, rightly understood, is how we order our society. Every, every decision we make about how we relate to one another, how we govern ourselves, how we deal with the fact that this is a fallen, broken, sinful world, all of that rightly understood in, in kind of a capital P is, is politics. And so as Christians called to love our neighbor, uh, we have to care about politics. But our motivation should be that. It should be to love our neighbor. Uh, our, our motivation, uh, I always love Jeremiah, you know, chapter 29, verse 7, where, where God commands the children of Israel in exile uh, to, to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to God on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And I think the order... The order of that command is really important 
It doesn't say uh, seek the welfare of the city to the extent it directly benefits you. Hmm. It doesn't say seek the welfare of the city in order to benefit yourself. Hmm. Um, it says seek the welfare of the city. And yet it's a command, kind of like the command to honor your father and mother. Uh, it's a command with a promise. We can confidently, genuinely seek the welfare of our communities to pray for our communities, to pray for our leaders, uh, knowing that in that God will seek and provide for our own welfare. And so I think our motivation and our purpose has to always be informed by the goal to love our neighbor and to seek the welfare of our community and not merely to seek our own personal or even our own community interests as a, as a body of believers. Um, that, is, that is how we're to engage. And then the last thing uh, that I'll sh- say here, I think our theology has to inform how we engage in politics our posture, uh, and our, our manner. This kind of goes back to the ambassador thing. We, we reflect who Christ is like as we engage with the world around us. And uh, if we are engaging in a hateful, um, angry, um, greedy, earthly, power-seeking way, that, that is a, a misrepresentation of, of who Christ is. And so uh, as we engage in politics, we need to be uh, representing Christ. And, and one thing that has just really jumped out to me uh, and I think is so contrary to our current political climate, um, if you read through the New Testament uh, and you start to look for this, I, I think you will be surprised by how frequently this comes up. Mm-hmm. But it's the command for Christians uh, to be marked in their uh, evangelism, in their defense of the faith, in, in everything we do by gentleness. Yeah. Amen. Gentleness. It's repeated uh, over and over and over again. It's a fruit of the spirit. When we're commanded to always be ready to make uh, defense for the faith, which when I was growing up, that was a common verse that we were taught because we were we were being taught to you know take captive every thought for Christ and to wield the sword of the spirit in battle mm-hmm. against the forces of evil by by marshalling our best arguments from logic and mm-hmm. philosophy and and scripture. Uh, And yet the very next line, same sentence, is how do we do it? With gentleness and all respect. And so it's so often, you know, that that we overlook this command to gentleness, which is a specific command and requirement for for elders, uh, but it's a command to all believers. And, you know, I think uh, in the current environment where we live, where there's so much division, uh, there's so much rancor even in the church over politics, you know, how countercultural and transformational would it be you know, for the church to engage in politics and have that engagement marked uh, not by division uh, but by a spirit of gentleness? That would be you know, truly a, a powerful testimony to who Christ is and to our future kingdom. That's good. As, a, as a, just a quick follow-up there, how, how do you personally... Um, I mean, it's just so easy. We, we can have all love and no truth. We can have all truth and no love. We can be so focused on politics that we forget our allegiance to Christ. And, and likewise, so focused on Christ that we don't care about our, our, our cities. Um, how do you find a, a balance in your life? That is a, that's the million-dollar question, right? Um, it is, is a question of wisdom and discernment. Um, and it's one that we have to make through uh, the, the input of community, uh, through the input of, of our church, uh, and through the discipleship you know, of, of our pastors and, and those that God has placed in our lives. You know, politics especially, you know, it's such a bubble. It is so all-consuming 
the stakes are, um, you know, the incentive by everyone is to, to try to raise the stakes as high as possible to motivate their people, to motivate the base, to motivate mm-hmm. engagement, to motivate donations. And so uh, always in politics, if you are, you know, to motivate viewership, mm-hmm. uh, to motivate ad revenue, uh, whatever, whatever the case may be, uh, to motivate likes and retweets on, on Twitter – all of these motivations, you know, force us into a bubble where where reality is distorted, um, where we quickly get into an echo chamber, and so uh, you know, the first part is you know, we need to get out of the echo chamber, um, and then the second part is we need to be in the word, we need to be uh, in community, we need to be in fellowship, um, and those things will not answer every single question. Um, but, but the fact is, as Christians, there is not one single answer to all of these questions. We're called to be faithful. Uh, we're called to seek uh, to represent Christ. Uh, we're called to do uh, everything we do in, in faith. Uh, but we're not called to do, all do the same exact thing and reach all the same conclusions on these issues. And then you asked about, you know, how do we not you know, neglect the gospel or forsake the gospel or forsake truth? Um, there are certain issues that the creed that we all recited together um, at the start of, of today, you know, that's, that's at the core, right? That, that is something where, you know, we can't, we can't give an inch on, on the gospel, mm. but there is a whole host of issues yeah. which are not the core. Yeah. They're secondary, they're tertiary, they're whatever the next word is that I always forget yeah. after tertiary. Uh, the point is that they are, are areas where Christians in good faith good conscience can disagree and we have freedom in Christ to do that. Yeah. And, and that is where, you know, discipleship and, and being in community mm-hmm. where we're seeking to be faithful, that's what's critical. And to get out of those, um, you know, the bubble of, yeah. of politics where, you know, I've experienced it myself. You quickly lose perspective. Uh, you quickly mm-hmm. um, are, are kind of swept along and influenced in ways you don't even realize until you get some separation. Yeah. Wow. That's good. Um, next question I have is a little bit of a longer one. Many Christian leaders, some whom I have the utmost respect have said things like quote, voting for the wrong candidate is a faithfulness issue. In other words, there, there is a Christian candidate to vote for. So if you're a Christian, you will choose rightly. Maybe using an argument like the importance of a Supreme Court seat or, or, or you know, for such things as, as abortion or, or religious liberty. As someone who has been a clerk for the Supreme Court, is this true? Um, and if not, is this kind of rhetoric dangerous? I think I'll answer that in, in two parts. Um, first, the, the kind of the general question of kind of the faithfulness issue. And then second, uh, the kind of the Supreme Court question, which is often the context and the motivation for, for statements like this. Um, I, I do think it's, it's unhelpful unhel- and unhealthy. Um, to make statements like that. And, and I shared some of the reasons for that just in, in, in the prior answer, um, because I do think there is freedom in Christ on, on some of these issues. Uh, the fact of the matter is, while the Bible uh, has some very clear principles, uh, some of which have obvious applications to questions of politics, um, the Bible doesn't tell you who to vote for in 2016 in the United States of America. It doesn't tell you who to vote for in 2020 or 2024 or in any other election. Um, it speaks far more clearly on a whole host of issues where everyone agrees that good faith Christians can disagree on, like baptism, um, you know, for example. And, and, and so to bind the conscience of believers 
and say, to be a Christian means you're going to vote for this candidate or vote this way on that issue, um, I think is, is, is unhealthy and, and just feeds um, a divisiveness which is not, which is not, um, mm. not biblical. Um, it is, it's extra biblical, and, and mm. it can err into the category of, of legalism. Mm. Um, and, and part of that is because you know, we, we, don't, we don't know the future, um, there is, we have very limited perspectives. Uh, even the most uh, gifted political prognosticators uh, have failed time and time again over the last uh, 10 years to uh, predict what is going to happen next. Um, the most talented and gifted legal prognosticators could not have told you what was going to happen uh, at the Supreme Court with the vacancies that opened, the appointments that were attempted, the appointments that failed, the appointments that were made. Uh, no one could have predicted and no one did predict exactly what happened. And so much of the, the statements that are made that here is what is the, the right thing to do um, assume, assume certain outcomes but even if they end up being right, uh, it, it was it was probably mostly luck, uh, is 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 the truth of it, uh, and and to see it kind of from the inside, uh, kind of behind the scenes, you know, understanding and realizing just how how much um, it, it feels almost random. Um, God, God is sovereign, so it's not it's not random. But so much of of what happens uh, is far more complicated, uh, far more. Uh, Things could have gone so many different ways uh, than than we usually think and 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 would expect from from just kind of an outsider's perspective. Uh, so I don't think it is it is right to kind of take that position, um, and I don't think it's healthy. You know, specifically on the Supreme Court, um, obviously, you know the Supreme Court is this incredibly powerful institution that makes incredibly important uh, pronouncements that have profound implications uh, for, for issues of morality, uh, for issues uh, that, that Christians should and do care about, uh, like abortion. And um, so a couple of observations and, and ways to think about that. You know, first is the Supreme Court's important. It probably shouldn't be so important. Mm. Um, the Supreme Court has become the final arbiter of every difficult social question in America. And, and so every hot-button issue, uh, we look to the Supreme Court to give us a pronouncement from on high. And, and that's not what the court was designed to do or to be. Uh, it's not in our interest as, as a, a, republic, uh, a republic or a democracy. It's not in the court's interest, ultimately, because it, it politicizes the court. It mm. decreases trust and public confidence in the court in ways that undermine the court's role uh, to continue to deliver such pronouncements. And we've, we've even seen that um, in, in, recent, uh, in recent decisions. And so uh, it's important, but it really shouldn't be. The, the fact that it's in the position it is mm. is a failure of, of our democracy, a failure of our other branches of government, the legislature and the executive, uh, that we can't have uh, disagreements and work them out over time through the normal political processes, but require uh, everything to be federalized and constitutionalized and, and decided by this body of, of, of justices who are, in my estimation, genuinely trying to get it right. Maybe have different views of the law and how to mm. apply it, but are trying to do their job and apply the law faithfully. Mm. And yet, you know, we, we put too much on them wow. uh, and put our hope, yeah. you know, we put our hope uh, in, in the Supreme Court. Um, and, and that's just another expression of kind of putting our hope in, in politics and institutions uh, when our hope should be in Christ. So, that, so that's one observation. Uh, mm. The second is 
you know, on the abortion issue specifically, um, there have been, and then there's going to be a recency bias that, well, President Donald Trump was elected. President Donald Trump appointed certain justices. Those justices voted to overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, and that, that is all factually accurate, for sure. Um, however, there have been many other Republican presidents who have appointed justices that many people expected to vote to overturn Roe versus Wade, who came very, very close uh, to voting to overturn Roe mm. versus Wade uh, in the early 1990s in the Casey decision, mm. and, and they didn't. And so there have been uh, many times uh, and many years where Republicans have said, vote for us because we will appoint pro-life justices, and that has not paid off. Mm. Um, and so historically speaking, uh, it is not the case that we can guarantee that a vote for a certain kind of, of candidate is going to lead to certain outcomes at the court. That just has historically not been, been true. Uh, and the fact that it was true this time doesn't mean it's always going to be true. Mm. Uh, Second, uh, two of the justices that were appointed, um, Justice Gorsuch, my old boss, Justice Kavanaugh, who I also uh, know well, they, they were at the top of the list for, for literally any Republican, uh, any Republican president. They would have been at the top of the list as potential appointments uh, for the geeks who are into all of that, you know, talk about who, who the next appointments will be. There are blogs. There are articles written about all of this. They would bore you to death. But th those are out there. All the prognosticators would have put Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, you know, up at the top of the list. So uh, the fact that, you know, President Trump was the one who happened to be in office and nominated them when the vacancies arose, yeah. that's also something where uh, to say that it required yeah. President Donald Trump to get those what turned out to be the deciding votes in the recent Dobbs decision in, in place. Also, not, not true. And so that's where... You know, it's just much more complicated than it can be tempting to think think it might be, wow. and so uh, we we need to consider all of these things. That's why we need to give each other grace. Mm -hmm. It's why we need to allow space for for people to come to different conclusions because there are a lot of uh, biblical issues, um, biblical values that are implicated by policies and politics and politicians. Mm -hmm. Issues of morality, issues of of character, issues of justice, mm -hmm. and different people, depending on their own background and the shoes that they've walked in, uh, have a lot more sensitivity to certain uh, kinds of evil. Which, which are true evil uh, than, than others, mm. while others may be more sensitive to, to different ones and to, yeah. to bind the conscience of believers one way or the other, given, given those realities, um, I ultimately think is, mm. is not uh, doing service to the church. Yeah. Wow, that's super, super helpful. And I don't, I've never thought about that as in regards to the Supreme Court, possibly um, having too much authority. Um, that's, that's super interesting. What, what, how would you... Um, obviously, we all know Roe versus Wade overturned, um, but there's a lot of confusion as to what that actually means. You think you can shed a little light on that for us? <clears throat> yeah, for sure. So the, the Dobbs decision overturned two prior Supreme Court decisions, Roe versus Wade, which was decided in the early 1970s, and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was decided in the early 90s. Um, and reaffirmed Roe versus Wade against a challenge um, to it. And in Dobbs, uh, a majority of the court uh, voted to overturn those decisions, which meant they uh, applied principles of stare decisis, which is the judicial, uh, there's a lot of 
Latin in law uh, to make us feel smarter than we are. Um, Star decisis is, is, is the, the process of reviewing a prior decision, and that's really important because there have obviously been a, a, a ton of, of really terrible decisions that the Supreme Court has made uh, in its history, uh, like the Dred Scott decision um, and uh, m many others that, that ultimately you know, were overturned. Um, I always think of the Korematsu decision because uh, I'm half Japanese. My grandmother was placed in an in incarceration camp in, in just outside of Sacramento um, because she was Japanese, uh, American citizen, um, for no other reason. Uh, she, was, she was incarcerated and, and received her high school diploma handed to her over the barbed wire fence. Um, and so, and the Supreme Court upheld that as constitutional and not an improper racial um, wow. policy on the part of the federal government. Um, so there have been all sorts of decisions like this, and, and to have them set in stone forever is, is not good. Uh, but to have the law constantly changing back and forth, back and forth, is also not good. And so the court looked at those decisions, and a majority determined that the principles of stare decisis justified uh, overturning them. And what that means is not uh, that abortion is illegal. I think most people understand that. Uh, what it means is that there is no longer a federal constitutional right to abortion uh, as recognized by the Supreme Court. Uh, and that means that each state now, just as it was before Roe versus Wade, uh, each state will pass its own policies, will interpret its own state constitution um, to determine what and how abortion is regulated mm. in, in a given state. So in the state of Colorado, uh, we have one of the most liberal uh, abortion laws in the country uh, where there are no, there are no limits uh, on when you can get an abortion. And, and that remains the same. Uh, it was the same before this recent Supreme Court decision. It is still the same. Yeah. It will continue uh, uh, likely for the foreseeable future to be mm. um, the law in Colorado. Mm. Uh, but other states had laws still on the books from before Roe versus Wade uh, that outlaw abortion. Others passed laws that are called trigger laws, such that as soon as Roe versus Wade was overturned, if it ever was, uh, abortion restrictions that would have been unconstitutional under Roe versus Wade uh, would immediately go into effect. And so that has happened as well. Yeah. Um, but Roe versus Wade uh, kind of prematurely federalized and constitutionalized a right to abortion. And, and many people have criticized it on both sides of the aisle yeah. for doing that. Um, and now uh, the, the reversal of Roe versus Wade uh, does not resolve the abortion issue yeah. either. It, it remains... Uh, as it always has been, mm. a question about hearts and minds, yeah. a question about um, you know policies and legislation and uh, in in individual states and communities, mm. and that will continue yeah. um, for for the foreseeable future. Mm. So um, that's 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 yeah. my that would be my my summary. Super for now. super helpful. Um, and you brought up the state of Colorado that that there seems to be a lot more we can do in politics at a local level so first would you agree and, and if so how would you encourage us as a church and individually to be involved locally in politics uh, i definitely would agree uh, i think a lot of people are tempted to think of politics purely on the national level you know, presidential politics, you know, what's going on in Congress, what's going on in the Supreme Court, what's going on on uh, the television set or on social media. And the fact of the matter is uh, that our, our influence on those things uh, as individual uh, citizens of, of the United States of America and, and residents of Colorado 
is, is incredibly small. Um, it, it really is. But our influence on uh, what's going on in our neighborhood and in our community mm, yeah. and, and in our state is considerably higher. And the value of a vote in those elections where there are far fewer uh, voters, far more uh, influential, far more uh, significant. Mm. And so, so, yes, we have so much more impact um, at the local level than we do at the national level. But, but more importantly than that, uh, we can love our neighbor uh, and, and, and seek the welfare of our communities uh, much, more be- much better when we're focused on our neighbor and our community yeah. than when we're focused on kind of, you know, the enemy out there who's kind of undefined and we've never met, never spoken to. We just hear about them um, when we turn on the radio. And, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that the policies and the rules and the, the elected officials who kind of most impact our own families and our neighborhoods and our communities and our churches and our businesses, almost all of that is, is primarily at the, the, local, uh, the local level. And so even when you're thinking about uh, what actually has an impact on the day-to-day, week-to-week life of, of a community, a church, uh, a business, you know, those decisions are often made uh, at the local level where we have more influence. Mm-hmm. And to be involved in that, you know, honestly, uh, I, I hesitate to encourage anyone to just like go out there, start stumping, start shaking hands and kissing babies to like get into politics because politics is so, so broken right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I will encourage you to do mm-hmm. is to, to seek to love your neighbor. If you keep yeah. your eyes open, uh, if you keep your ear to the mm-hmm. ground, if you stay in one space, in one community for any extended period of time, you will begin to pick up on what the, the issues and the concerns and the fears yeah. and the problems are. And then you can seek to love your neighbor in those, whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to just give one example of this, uh, I live in Platt Park which is kind of right on South Broadway in Denver. Uh, it's actually a very quiet, you know, great uh, residential neighborhood. But we've had a couple of instances in recent years where uh, establishments have opened up uh, that are open till 2 a.m. or later and uh, become a place where people get very, uh, very drunk and then speed through our neighborhood, mm. fire guns at our houses, and, and generally you know, create a, a true danger to the wow. community. And simply by living in the same neighborhood, in the same house for five years, uh, I have been able to, to be involved uh, in both of those efforts to deal with the Denver Excise and Licenses, which is a local mm. government agency that most people never have heard of and wow. would never even think about. But now I know all about it. So if you have any questions about <laughs> that afterwards, uh, let me know. And, wow. and to really serve my neighbors in a way that is completely nonpartisan. Wow. Um, you know, I'm working with people who I'm sure have incredibly different backgrounds, political views, uh, theological backgrounds, uh, faith backgrounds than I do. And yet that is completely irrelevant when people are shooting guns next to our sleeping children uh, at 2.30 a.m. You know, we can work together and seek to, to love the community and love the neighbors um, when we're just living in a community and seeking the good uh, of that community. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's so just pointing us back to the word, right? I mean, it, it, James, it's James who says... Uh, <clears throat> The royal law of liberty, right, or, or the royal law is to love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's that's the orders from our king. Um, super encouraging, Alex. Um, next question. This is again a longer one. 
One of the things that 2020 exposed, at least in the church, was this aspect of allegiance. So many people left churches, joined new churches, and even quit going to church altogether over issues of politics. If you preached a sermon on justice during the days of George Floyd, you most, you most likely lost a lot of people. If you didn't bring up George Floyd, you lost people. People leaving over masks and vaccines. In other words, 2020 showed us that allegiance to Christ is not the church's strongest allegiance. And now in the church, tribalism is everywhere. People are leaving churches not over theology or church leadership, but to hear what they want to hear politically. And unfortunately, many professing Christians are more influenced by CNN and Fox than by the Sermon on the Mount. So here's my question. How can we be better as the capital C church? And what can we do as a local church to, to foster an allegiance to Christ and tear down walls of tribalism? Well, finally, got to the, finally got to the softball question. Um, I mean, I think, we, I think we've, we've talked, you know, on, we've, we've touched on some of, uh, some of the things that I think are important here um, already. But, but you're, you're absolutely right. Um, there is uh, a lot of talk in kind of the nat- national debates and among, you know, the talking heads of kind of Christian intellectualism on, you know, whether and, and to what extent we need to keep religion out of politics. Mm. Uh, a lot of concern often, you know, from the political left on religion inserting itself into politics and, and the, the dangers of that. And, and that's a, a very complicated topic um, that, that maybe we can talk about later. I view uh, the, the deeper danger to the church and ultimately to the country uh, when politics gets into our religion, uh, when politics mm. is, is influencing and transforming and dictating our, our religious views and religious beliefs and religious practices, mm. um, rather than the other way around. And uh, the reason for that is, is, is the very things you mentioned. You know, people are sitting in the pew for an hour or two, one morning a week, yeah. but the rest of the time they're listening to Fox News uh, or CNN or MSNBC, or they're scrolling through social media, which increasingly is just an echo chamber reinforcing our, our worst impulses based on impulses of pride and greed and fear uh, and insecurity and hatred and division. Uh, all of these things are so much more present. So it's not just that we, we care more about the Sermon on, or care more about Fox or CNN than the Sermon on the Mount. It's that we're, we're listening to Fox yeah. and CNN about, you know, 20 times more mm-hmm. than we're listening to the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, the Bible explains why this is. It says uh, in Proverbs that, that he who walks with the wise will grow wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. In other words, you know, we become like our companions. Mm. And unfortunately, um, and for many members of the church, for all of us, we, we tend to not think of uh, the, the forms of media we're consuming, uh, the books we're reading, uh, the conversations we're having uh, as, as, as companions that are influencing us. Uh, and you know, for the church to, to disciple well, uh, we need to bring home the fact that uh, if you have you know, talk radio on on your commute every day to work and you have the TV on um, at home every evening as you're going about your evening and you're scrolling through social media and reading takes either owning the libs or exposing the hypocrites on the right uh, constantly, that that is shaping you, uh, that those are, are in fact companions 
mm-hmm. who are influencing you either to be wise or to become more foolish. Uh, that those are those are themselves liturgies, mm-hmm. um, you know, practices that form the soul, yeah. uh, that form our character, and so. Uh, you know, mm. hosting events like this where, where conversations can be had and the church can be encouraged uh, to think more biblically about these topics. I mean, that, that is so, so encouraging to me mm-hmm. that, that you guys are doing that. Uh, but then second, we, we need to be mindful of our companions and, yeah. and we need to do you know, the hard work you know, of first reminding uh, each other, you know, where is our allegiance, our first allegiance? It's to Christ. Uh, where is our hope? It's in Christ and his mm-hmm. coming kingdom, not in this world. Uh, but then to say, what are the implications of that for our media consumption habits mm-hmm. and the companions that we're allowing to, to, to dominate our lives? Um, this has always been an issue, but it's exacerbated today when yeah. there is just so much more information so many more tweets and posts and viral videos. Um, it, it's just the, the quantity, the volume, the never endingness yeah. of it is, is just astronomical compared to just 10, 20 years ago. And, and the result is that we're, we're basically high speed companioning constantly with, with voices that are not informed, uh, by the sermon on the Mount, which are not informed by biblical principles and even subconsciously, without realizing it, we're, we're being shaped and our souls are being impacted by that. And so addressing kind of that, I think, mm-hmm. is, is the next step of saying what does allegiance to Christ you know, mean in our daily lives in order to take a step back uh, from, from the kind of the one, one-way ratchet of, yeah. of consuming constantly uh, that very divisive worldly political messaging. Wow. That's so good. And yet it's so hard. Like we know clear in scripture, like don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then how, how easy it is just to, to scroll, um, man. Um, next question. What is Christian nationalism and why, and why is it dangerous? All right. So, so first, uh, Christian, what Christian nationalism is not. Uh, so Christian nationalism is not being a Christian and loving your country. Um, it is not simply being uh, feeling patriotic. Um, I, I love America. Uh, my grandmother, as I said, was uh, incarcerated based on the fact that she was of Japanese ancestry. Um, her husband, uh, also Japanese-American, uh, volunteered to, to serve in the military for the United States in World War II and uh, was placed in an all-Japanese regiment called the 442nd. They were the most decorated um, military regiment in, in U.S. military history. He lost his leg, his left leg, uh, to a shrapnel uh, blast in, in France and received a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star um, for a country that was incarcerating everyone who looked like him back home. Wow. Um, and yet their grandson clerked at the U.S. Supreme Court that said all that was constitutional. That's pretty awesome. You know, that's one of those stories which is not true. That type of story is not true in most countries yeah. in the world and has not been true throughout history. So that's incredible. I'm, I'm proud to be an American, um, despite the, the many flaws that I have seen in my own family uh, and, and I know exist. Um, so that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's not Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism rightly understood is the view uh, that, that the United States, uh, in, in, the, in the context of America, that the United States is 
and should be a Christian nation and that the obligation of believers is to, to mm. fight, to keep it that way. Mm. So that's, that's what Christian nationalism rightly understood um, is. And, and that is, uh, that is dangerous um, for, for a number of reasons. One is, is it is a, is a conflation of earthly power and an earthly kingdom with our heavenly future kingdom. Mm, um, and it's putting our hope in an earthly power and an earthly kingdom instead of a heavenly kingdom. It often and, and increasingly uh, is reflected in this view, um, which I heard explicitly a lot growing up mm. um, in kind of the Joshua generation movement, uh, that the United States is, is basically a new, the new Israel. That wow. God's chosen people, when, when scripture is clear that God's chosen people, the new Israel is all believers yes. worldwide, mm. not one country um, that has been around for a couple hundred years. And, and so that's, that can be, be an expression of it for sure. Uh, so it's dangerous there because it, 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 mm. it distorts our hope. Um, it's dangerous wow. too um, because it, 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 is, it, it often lends itself to a view that, you know, if, if America is and always has been or should be a Christian nation, um, we, we're very tempted to whitewash our history and to whitewash the, the evils and the flaws and the mistakes of, of our past mm. and to do so in ways which are a stumbling block uh, to, to the gospel uh, in, within groups of people who, who were on the receiving end of those injustices. Um, so... If you look back and study the, the history of the, the civil rights movement in, in the United States, there, there was a Christian nationalist state party uh, in the South, uh, which was basically you know, an arm of the KKK seeking to preserve this good Christian nation where the races don't mix. You know, so that, that's the type of rhetoric that has often been associated with people who take this view of America. We are a Christian nation. That's our identity as a country. Um, and, and that is, you know, that is not you know, necessarily or, or certainly not something yeah. that most people who, who maybe even now in recent years have said, no, I'm, I'm a proud Christian nationalist. That's not what they're trying to say, yeah. but that's what a lot of people hear, and I think that's dangerous to the church's witness. Um, and then, then third, I think it's dangerous because it really invites um, – it invites and weaken. It invites people into the church, and it weakens the church uh, by attracting people who are simply looking to use Christianity and the church and biblical language um, as as a tool to further their own worldly ambitions. Mm-hmm. So you've seen that you know for years with politicians who will quote a Bible verse or say "God bless America," and everybody who knows anything about them knows that this is purely um, a, a way of earning votes and kind of playing to the base and their, their lives show no true commitment or belief or genuine walk with God. So that, that's always been true. Yeah. But what we're increasingly seeing as, as Christian nationalism has infected the evangelical church in the United States is that, that many people are attracted to the church for political reasons. Um, and, and so recent polls have been done um, of, of people who self-identify as evangelical. And those numbers have been, been shooting up um, among Republicans. Wow. But at the same time, the, the rate of people who actually regularly attend religious services, who are actually members of a local church, is going the opposite direction. 
and, and, and the takeaway there, as people have kind of looked at this data, is, is that people increasingly are self-identifying as evangelical as a political identification, not as a true religious identification. And, and that's, that's, that's dangerous. You know, that's harmful for our churches, uh, expressions of that and, and the, the, the outgrowth of that are, are many of the reasons, I'm sure, why so many pastors uh, are, are dealing with uh, the, the burnout uh, that you mentioned earlier. And so um, as believers, you know, going back to those first principles we talked about earlier, where, where is our hope? Uh, who, where is our allegiance? Um, those questions, I think, are, are incompatible with, yeah. with a, a Christian nationalist uh, view uh, of the world and of politics. So helpful. Thank you. And, 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 and partially the reason I'm asking some of these softball questions um, are because this is my world in, 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 in many of, of, of my friendships. I'm, 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 I'm having to deal with the meaning of evangelical and, and, and okay, what is Christian nationalism and, and, and how do I win this brother back or, 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 or whatever it might be? Uh, as a follow-up question, is that term evangelical is it i mean what do we do with that term as the church because because it seems like it's been hijacked um is it is it a term worth going after that that is such a a, a hard question um because you're you're absolutely right that the word evangelical both people who claim the word like i just just discussed but also that the outside world watching you know now they hear the word evangelical and they think uh racist uh trump loving republican that's that's what they think and that does not mean that if you voted for Trump, that you're a racist. Uh, it does not mean that everyone who is an evangelical falls in that category. Certainly not. But that is the, the reality of, of how people view that term. And, and it's a huge stumbling block to evangelism. Yeah. Um, it is a, a huge, um, I think, obstacle to, to the, the church's mission mm-hmm. in the United States. And, and some of that is, is self-inflicted. Um, by how yeah. Christians have navigated politics in recent mm-hmm. years, and, and, and that's a heartbreaking thing, um, and it shouldn't be so. Mm. And so, you know, it's, it's messy, but, but yeah. you're right that it, it's a term, you know, evangelical, properly understood. You know, it reflects a, a commitment to, to historical orthodoxy, a commitment to evangelism, mm-hmm. an emphasis on Christ's atoning work on the cross. Yeah. That, that is what evangelical means and has meant for, for many, many years. And yet over the last, you know, really the last 50 years or so, um, evangelical has increasingly taken on a political, um, political meaning. Uh, where evangelical and Republican uh, are almost synonymous. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as Christians, um, our allegiance cannot be to a particular mm-hmm. party. Um, it cannot be um, to a particular politician. And um, I would love to think that we could turn this around and, and save the word evangelical because it's, it's a word I've claimed uh, as an identity you know, my, my entire life. Um, but I think it's another uh, area where, where real discernment um, is needed because I yeah. think there are so many conversations uh, that we enter into as believers now where using that term 
claiming that identity, uh, which is not, you know, it's not a, a biblical term or you know, a mandate, biblically mandated identification for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, but, but using that can just shut down the conversation, you know, at the outset um, and, and completely shut someone's, you know, ears and heart to, to the, the gospel itself. And so um, I am probably somewhat selective depending on my audience, you know, and, and, and whether I would, you know, put my hand up and say, Hey, I'm an evangelical, you know, in, in, in a church context, in a evangelical context, uh, I want people to understand, you know, I'm, I'm one of you, this, this is my background. This is my experience. These are my commitments. This are my theological commitments. Yeah. Uh, and that's important. But if I'm talking to another audience, um, there's no, there's no pride. There's no, you know, biblical um, command to to own the libs by by saying I'm an evangelical in a context yeah. where that simply shuts down the conversation. Uh, sure. I think we can exercise you know discernment and seek to really um, avoid the cultural political baggage that certain ideas and terms have 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 taken on and and really our goal and this is this is the uh, this is the mission of, of my church fellowship denver uh, is is to help people see and know the original Jesus uh, stripped wow. of all of that That's cultural and, and political baggage mm-hmm. uh, kind of get back to the gospels and, and who Christ really is. Uh, and that should be our mission not to claim or reclaim, you know, some, some term. Um, I would love to think we could, yeah. but, but time will, time will tell. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Um, wanted to open it up to questions at six. So we'll have about 25 minutes for some Q and a, but this is the last question I have. Um, uh, medium one. It, this is an important one, I think. Um, it's not going to be a softball. It's more like a slider. So, um, <laughs> Secularism seems to be a good thing, namely space for freedom of thought and religion amidst a, a pluralist society. The separation of church and state, as opposed to a theocracy, seems like a good idea, but, but building off the conversation... We had in theology on the ground last month with the sexual revolution. Secularization, to me, seems to be a real threat to the First Amendment. Um, I'm mainly talking about the militant secularization that might be okay that we have a right to worship, but not okay with what we believe. Um, am, am, am Am I tripping out, or is this an actual threat? Um, is, is religious freedom under attack? Yes and no. There you go. Um, so, so you know, I guess initial initial thought, you know, is is there kind of an increasing, you know, the words you use, militant secularization, where uh, there is a, a movement and, a, and an impulse to pr- try to permanently ostracize people who hold traditional Christian views on morality and gender and marriage uh, and sexuality? You know, absolutely. That there is, and and it's uh, it's so militant that uh, some of my very liberal friends are are being turned off by it, and and wow. it's having the opposite effect. It's it's a it's a vocal wow. but influential minority um, that that are are really pushing this kind of very militant view of things. Uh, it's not new, though. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. 
the you know groups of people seeking to overturn um, you know Christian views of, of marriage and, and family order and and morality and sexuality uh, that's been been the story for the last several hundred years of of, of the West mm. um, so it's it's new in its expression it's new in some of its um, applications but it's not it's not new new yeah. um, we have a, a Supreme Court that is very sensitive to religious liberty uh, and has issued a number of decisions mm-hmm. in recent years which are as uh, protective of religious liberty as any decisions that the Supreme Court has, has ever issued. Wow. Uh, and that's true of, of some justices appointed uh, by both Republican and some of the justices appointed by, by Democrat wow. uh, presidents. Uh, so that another, another data point um, to, to throw out there. Uh, and then, you know, the, the other, um, you know, the other issue is, you know, are people going to be tortured and imprisoned um, by, by, by this trend uh, as mm. a result of this trend? No. Mm. Um, are, are people going to be fed to the lions like the early martyrs um, because of, of these trends? No, mm. th- they're not. And, and so, you know, yes, I, I would expect and predict sitting where I am today uh, that my daughter is going to grow up in a, in a world where uh, faith and ministry and, and just holding on to traditional Christian beliefs will be more difficult for her than it was for me mm. and, and more difficult uh, you know, for her than it was for my parents. Uh, and yet that, that, can't be, uh, that can't be where we, where we put our hope, right? Yeah. You kind of go back to that same theme. Wow. We, we can, our hope is not in our, you know, our beliefs being welcomed and celebrated and in, enshrined in law. Yeah. That's not our hope. Um, you know, most Christians in the world today, literally the majority of Christians in the world today are, are in countries uh, where they have far less, if, if not no freedom uh, of religion. And uh, and the gospel is thriving, yeah. and and that was the story of of the spread of of Christianity in its early days. And so, I'm not saying, hey, we should welcome persecution uh, in the sense that you know who cares if there's religious liberty. I think there's there's room for um, Christians to seek the good of their community by seeking uh, religious liberty for everyone, not just Christians, but but everyone. Uh, that's one way we love our neighbor. That's one way we seek the good of the community, and in seeking the good of our community, see uh, our own welfare. Um, but at the same time, uh, a lot of the fear-based um, politics of religious liberty is under attack. Um, I think, you know, falls prey to some of the, the heirs of theology we, yeah. we talked about earlier of, of allowing our hope to be hmm. in worldly power yeah. and, and, um, and in, and, and in uh, being, being able to, to live our lives freely and without discomfort uh, when that, that's not the call. That's certainly not the promise uh, that the New Testament gives for those who, who seek to faithfully follow Christ in a world that doesn't recognize him as king. Wow. Thank you. You definitely smashed that slider over the center fielder's head. Magna cum laude. I, I, had, to, I had to bring you some, some tough ones. <laughs> well, we got, we got about 30 minutes now of, 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 of Q&A. Um, so does anyone have any questions? And if so, if you can actually start walking up this way, because we are recording it. So I would love if we are able to hear your voice loud and clear. Joe? So you talk about polarization. Do you think that polarization, again, another softball question, is it because the society is polarized or our leaders are taking us in that direction? 
I think I think it's both. Um, unfortunately, you know the the trends of polarization that we see um, are, are not new. You see the seeds of them kind of dating back uh, decades, uh, but accelerating in, in recent years with kind of the advent of of twenty four seven news media and social media, especially. And and what is so damaging, um, given the the political world that we live in, is uh, capitalizing and feeding um, and, and, and taking advantage of, of polarization is the, the ticket to political success in, in our country. Uh, part of the reason for that is because of what's called gerrymandering, which is uh, a sin of both sides. Basically, once politicians are elected, they all get together and say, how do we redraw the district lines so that all of us stay in office forever? Wow. And uh, as long as I stay in office forever, I'm fine if you stay in office forever. And they redraw the lines in these crazy zigzags so that uh, all of the Republican voters are in this district, all the Democratic voters are in this district, and it's a safe seat for that party. And, and the result of that is that to win a nomination for either party, you have to play to the extremes of the base, the people who are most active in the primary. And, and that uh, trend, again, pox on both houses. This is both sides. It's not just Republicans. It's not just Democrats. Uh, is, is that polarization only increases. Now what happens? All the political ads, all of the, the marketing and the campaigning, all of it is made to further that, that interest and that dynamic. Uh, and, and the result is just a kind of a snowball effect. You know? And social media, um, you know, and, and people who both for good and people for, for who are very much trying to sow disruption uh, in our political uh, society, use social media to prey on existing polarization and divisions uh, in ways that are, are unhealthy. So uh, this is a very depressing answer uh, to your question. But the, the, the fact is, uh, you know, unfortunately, um, and this is, this is one, of, one of my criticisms of former President Trump, uh, is that he, perhaps more than any other candidate um, in, in modern history, uh, fed and pr uh, preyed upon that polarization. Um, he, he took advantage of it and, and, and in ways that at least some other politicians who may be just as, as morally culpable but, but maybe a little more restrained by tradition um, and, and the dignity of the office didn't, he, he just leaned into it and turbocharged it um, in ways that are, are you know, very damaging, I think, to our political fabric. Thanks. <coughs> Kathy. So as a citizen, it gets really hard to know how to vote when it's time to vote. Um, there can be so much misinformation as there is good information. Is there a site um, that is best to help you do research when you're trying to decide? I know, you know, like a governor's race or a presidential race or a senator, you're going to find a lot of information out there and in interviews they've done. But as it gets more to the local, it gets harder and harder to find out what these people truly stand for. And on the other side of that, when they get ready to vote for something, they don't always vote the way they feel they would vote. They want to vote the way their constituents would want them to vote and who's been the loudest at telling them what they want or don't want. So I'm just wondering, I, I know the system, our political system is fairly broken. But so two questions, I guess. How do we inform our vote more locally than nationally? And is there anything we can do to help fix a very broken system? 
those are those are excellent questions. If if uh, the second one, I, I don't I don't I'll just give a preview. I don't have a, a great great silver bullet answer. Um, <laughs> On, on how we kind of educate ourselves. I mean, I, I'm right there with you. I just got my ballot in the mail, and it is long. And there are so many ballot initiatives and constitutional amendments and local ordinances, uh, and, and it's hard to know what's going on. Um, I have found kind of in recent years, um, you know, there, there actually are a fair number of, of of resources, websites, um, news news organizations that at least make an effort to, to describe these initiatives uh, in, a, in a neutral neutral way, kind of presenting each of them as their proponents would would present them. Um, so you know whether it's uh, Colorado uh, Public Radio uh, often will have kind of ballot uh, descriptions articles. Often look at those. Uh, there have been several others which the names escape me that I I will often find when I just Google you know a ballot initiative and I'll find you know various descriptions and and you're reading some tea leaves you're figuring out who who are the people behind this and all of that um, and it and it's difficult it's it's really difficult because of how much misinformation is out there but going kind of straight to um, straight to the source first with reports that are based on kind of conversations and interviews, you know, media reports with the actual proponents that can be helpful because you're, you're hearing indirectly, but from the proponents of the initiative. And then second, I've actually been surprised by how often uh, you couldn't have a conversation with the people who are behind a ballot initiative. They are eager to talk to anybody who wants to talk to them about their ballot initiative because this is probably something that they have thought about uh, every day for the last you know three years. And you know, so going to your neighborhood, um, re- your registered neighborhood community meeting. Uh, the proponents of ballot initiatives will show up and they will take questions and they'll have conversations with you. I just went to one because of the issues we're having in our neighborhood and uh, there were all these people there to talk to us about their ballot initiatives and it was great. I learned all sorts of things about uh, some of those um, just as a result of showing up at a, a community gathering like that. And so I would uh, you know, encourage you to, to, to be, uh, be on the lookout for opportunities like that. It's actually not as difficult as you might think to actually go straight straight to the source and and get some information um, and you know the reason why I think that's so so beneficial um, most of my life I was kind of a straight down the line voter uh, republican um, and I don't think in in the 21st century uh, that any political party is going to have a platform that perfectly aligns with biblical principles. Mm-hmm. That 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 would be the most shocking historical coincidence ever if that was actually true. <laughs> and so the idea that that Christians should be wholly um, committed to to a single party on all issues at all levels of government um, is is you know just is not is, is not true. Uh, I don't think. And so. Being willing to be a little bit politically homeless and and to think through these these issues in the way that it sounds like you're trying to do um, is such a healthy thing. But I, I'm right with you on the difficulty. Um, it's it's hard it's hard to navigate it. Um, I do think, you know, our our ultimate goal is not to fix our politics um, as a country. I mean, that would be a great thing. I, I'm all for it, and we should do our part. Um, I think uh, a a more immediate goal. Uh, should be to fix our own politics. And then uh, a secondary goal uh, should be to, as the church, uh, fix our politics. 
uh, and in the way we engage with politics. And ultimately, you know, that is the only way the church can and will ever have the type of, you know, transformative impact on a culture uh, that would uh, would amount to fixing politics, mm-hmm. you know, in America, is if the church actually gets back to being the church, actually uh, is set apart and, and living and pursuing faithfulness in a way that's distinguishable from your, you know, lifelong, uh, you know, Republican Party member or, or your lifelong Democratic Party member. Mm-hmm. Um, that That is ultimately, you know, the seed that if it ever happens, and that's not our hope, but if it ever happens, you know, for our politics to, to truly be healed. Amen. Politically homeless. I love that. Thank you. <clears throat> More of an opinion question. Civil disobedience gets thrown around a lot these days. Not from the perspective of, you know, rebelling against God's laws or God's word, but more from the perspective of, hey, I have a constitutional right and that constitutional right is being violated. So just curious what your thoughts were on uh, civil disobedience when it comes to constitutional rights being potentially violated. Oh, man. Um, I, I should probably just start by saying that that I don't have a fully formed opinion on this. Um, I, I as a as a you know, as a former Supreme Court law clerk, um, you know, so many of our, our landmark constitutional decisions uh, were the result of civil disobedience. Um, most most of the cases that get to the court uh, on major constitutional issues are the result of uh, conspiracies by people who, you know, break a law, pass a law that they know will be challenged as a vehicle that they can take up to the court for for resolution. And and there's complicated rules uh, that the court takes into account on what cases to grant and uh, what cases are good vehicles is the terminology. And, uh, And there's a lot of effort made by folks in the states back to, you know, the NAACP and some of the civil rights cases that went to the court where there's a lot of effort made to find sympathetic plaintiffs, sympathetic facts, and to really frame up the issue in a, in a favorable way through intentional civil disobedience. So that's one, one thing that I kind of have in my mind. Um, I'm very, very familiar with that because of my background uh, at the court. And then second, uh, I've been reading recently um, an excellent trilogy on the, the history of the civil rights movement by Taylor Branch. Um, and that's all about nonviolent civil disobedience um, led by Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and many, many brave, um, many, many brave uh, black Americans. And, you know, that, that was, you know, what they did against very unjust, uh, evil laws of segregation um, that, that barred them from exercising their constitutional rights uh, to vote, um, that barred them from, uh, you know, being in integrated uh, settings with, with whites. And uh, none of, none of the, uh, the, the progress that our country has made on equality, uh, I think, would have been accomplished without the, the bravery of those individuals um, who who are willing to to defy defy the laws of of Jim Crow, basically to 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 accomplish that. You know, scripturally, you know, we we have kind of various various encouragements and commands in Scripture, right? So we we are to submit to the authorities um, as as ordained by God. That that is our command as as, as Christians. Uh, we're supposed to respect and submit to them. We're supposed to pray for them. Um, that is often my first first impulse and, and where I go because I see that clearly in Scripture. Um, and yet, at the same time, we see the apostles, you know, when they're instructed to to stop, uh, you know, 
preaching the name of Christ, you say, is it right for us to obey man or God? Uh, and there, there is a moment, and there will be moments, when as believers uh, we're, we're faced with the question of, of obeying God or obeying the government. And that's no question for a Christian. You know, faithfulness means taking the consequences of that. Um, constitutional rights, um, I think there are some of them, um, and arguably including the ones that, that I was discussing earlier, uh, that are, are in fact uh, expressions of, of God-given rights uh, that, that, you know, amount to a situation where as a, as a thoughtful, faithful Christian, you know, that's the, that's the right, right path to, to take. Uh, but the Constitution is not the Bible. And so it's not the case that every right and freedom that we're blessed to have as Americans is, is worth uh, you know, defying government and, and kind of breaking that general rule of submission to the authorities as believers. And there's a, a sense in, in, our, in our kind of political background and as Americans where we stand on our rights and we fight for our rights and our liberty to do as we please with our property and with, the, you know, with our lives and uh, – that is not an invariably uh, a basis for for defying government uh, as Christians. I don't think, um, because some of those things are are simply the the extra blessings that we enjoy as Americans, and not true um, matters of morality or obedience to Christ. Um, but where where they are, uh, I think. Hmm. And, and, and all of this goes to, to wisdom, discernment, and, and freedom in Christ to, to come to different opinions. Um, where, where it is God or man, we have to obey God every time. Amen. Jen? Okay, I, it's kind of two parts, and I'm going to try to keep make it succinct. But I get confused when um, brothers and sisters in Christ that I respect um, argue for a more Christian government, like the um, laws of nature that we have because of who our God is and how he made us, the order of creation, the ways we were made are good and right. And so the argument is, therefore, we should promote a Christian government. We should promote Christian laws. We should do what we can to set up a Christian nation because of who our God is. And that's for the best of us. So that argument confuses me because I agree that the Lord created us a certain way and his ways are the best. And that's what I want for my family and for all people. I want to love my neighbor by ensuring that they have an opportunity to live out the way the Lord made them. Um, but I get confused because I feel like that argument tends to tip into the Christian nationalist camp and it like puts my hope elsewhere so can you speak to that a little bit? Because it just gets muddy for me um, and help me like delineate those things. And the second part is, and maybe this isn't helpful and you can, we can come back to it later maybe. Um, but I feel like gay marriage is maybe speaks to that a little bit. Like I see a good Christian argument for that being illegal. And I see a good Christian argument for that being legal. Not that it's biblical. You know, I wrote a book about that. I don't think that, but I, but the value of, freedom for all and protection for all. So yeah, I know that was a little muddy and I'm sorry. Thank you. No, no, it's not because it's muddy. It's because it's, it's hard. Um, <laughs> you know, on, on the first part, you know, the, there, there's obviously things that we can all, you know, kind of agree with, or at least be, be open to in, in what you described of, you know, God has, has, 
has created not just a physical order but a moral order and that that human beings thrive in, in keeping with both the physical order like not you know jumping off of a tall building and expecting to fly uh, and and also in keeping with the moral order um, observing God's kind of moral standards in society and and I think most of us would be sympathetic and, and if not you know in, in full agreement with with those principles um, the, the the problem with with kind of taking that to the uh, the level of let's establish a Christian nation um, you know certainly to take it to the point of let's uh, enforce Christianity at the edge of a sword uh, certainly taking it to the point of our hope is ultimately to have uh, a nation where where Christians are in power um, you know the problem there is that that's nowhere in the Bible. There's no there's no suggestion um, of of that as as a goal or of the the purpose of, of of Christians you know here on earth. We're we're instead told to expect to be hated and persecuted, and you know something's probably wrong if if that's not happening at all. Um, we're, we've probably compromised um, if if that's not happening, and so I think you know. Yes, it's there's kind of this muddiness in the line between the two, you know, the, the Christian nationalism mm -hmm. versus the, you know, how do we how do we support and enforce a moral order that is for the good of neighbor, um, and that's again where you know honestly uh, probably much smarter, wiser people than than me uh, have have given a lot of thought to how how do you you strike that balance? Uh, mm -hmm. What I have seen, uh, and and the. So more the, the caution that I would have for people who, who maybe are more open to and sympathetic to that viewpoint um, is that in practice, in practice, as, as people have attempted to, to enforce that, um, it's, it's often not for the, the good of, of the neighbor. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not enacted uh, in, in love towards uh, the wayward sinner uh, it is it is usually in a self-interested uh, you know sort of of expression uh, that I think that's clearly not uh, the the right attitude or posture uh, or purpose of, of Christians you know in, in exile as sojourners and so um, there are certainly ways in which you know we can promote morality, uh, to promote families, to promote stable families, because we see um, God's good design in that, and we see the the repercussions of that. Um, but but one of the problems, um, and this this goes back to the kind of political capture, of, you know, being uh, having our allegiance to a particular political party. Um, there are so many ways in which uh, I think God, the expression of God's kind of moral order and priorities. Um, bleed across political divides in, in our current you know, political climate. And so we see um, many Republicans who are absolutely right when it comes to um, issues of, of life and, and abortion, uh, and yet completely oppose all sorts of government policies and programs and safety nets that would uh, actually prevent uh, an expecting mother from feeling like abortion is, is their only option. Um, who and, and it's not for moral reasons. It's not because I read my Bible and I think that government programs are evil. Uh, that's not even the reason. The reason is usually because uh, they're uh, allied with the Republican Party and big business, and it's bad for business to provide uh, paid leave uh, and maternity leave and child care uh, to, to workers. And, and those... Those types of um, expressions 
of kind of biblical morality, unfortunately, in our political climate and, and by you know, many of the politicians that I've interacted with, um, they often stop short um, of truly seeking to love neighbor uh, through the, the, the observation of, of those moral standards and instead um, kind of quickly become uh, a blunt force, uh, a blunt force, very imperfect um, implementation that actually causes a lot of harm and hurt. Um, and, and the fact is, someday there will be um, a, a Christ will come and, and establish his kingdom. Mm-hmm. And, and, and at that time, injustice will be yes. put out of the world and sin will be put out of the world and his moral order and, and the thriving that, that it brings will be the reality. Um, yeah. But as Christians, we, we cannot do that ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are not going to enact that by assuming positions of power and influence. And in yeah. fact, when we have, we usually screw it up real bad. And so, um, <laughs> so that's, that's part of why, you know, the, the Christian nationalist view, I think, is, is, is short-sighted and, and, and unhelpful. Um, because ultimately, again, our hope is for Christ to establish that in, in, in his perfection uh, when he returns and not to establish that ourselves. Uh, because you know, we're broken and fallen, we can't do it. Amen. Amen. Last two questions. Ryan, you go first. So it seems that there's the res- response to Christian nationalism uh, is they throw around this word as nuance, and nuance bleeds really closely into tolerance. So as it comes to let's call it primary issues, one is it worth the discourse to have that conversation about something that's conviction and then two if so how how would you actually go about having the conversation that's not polarized that's not tolerant but is a real conviction and and that is biblical and then how do you actually have that conversation with someone without it being completely uh vicious towards each other if you have yeah, I mean, it, that, that, is, that is so difficult because, you know, in any conversation, um, we're just one side of it, right? And you can't control how someone else is going to respond um, and, and whether they will engage um, with, with kind of love and kindness or whether they're going to engage in, in vitriol and, and hatred. Um, and, and some of that, you know, we just have to have the peace of, of knowing, you know, I'm trying to be faithful. I was faithful in this conversation, but it didn't go well, and, yeah. and I, I can live with that. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you know, when I when I went to Harvard Law School, uh, I had always grown up in a you know a very conservative evangelical setting. I'd gone to college at a very small conservative Christian school where everybody thought exactly the same as me. It felt like we had all these differences, but now the longer I get away from him, like, oh my gosh, we were all like exactly the same. It's crazy. Um, and so this was my first time being kind of in the minority, you know, and surrounded by people who, um, you know, were, were just very different from me in every single way. And I kind of went in there with my hard hat on expecting all the persecution that I was promised um, from the, the terrible liberals uh, and evil Democrats of the world. And, 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 you know, part of my conviction to be faithful was I'm, I'm not going to hide the fact that I'm a follower of Christ. I'm going to be really open about that, not in an obnoxious way uh, or a, a combative way, but just in a, you know, honest, transparent way. Um, and to my surprise, uh, 
I can't point to a single moment of persecution uh, that I experienced uh, at Harvard Law School. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people who had very different lifestyles, very different backgrounds, very different beliefs than me. Uh, and yet, you know, by and large, they were tolerant and respectful. And as I was honest about who, who I was, uh, they even kind of went out of their way to try to find kind of touch points and, and points of commonality. And I ended up having all sorts of just really, you know, good conversations about very difficult issues like abortion and uh, same-sex marriage with people to whom that was a very personal topic and who completely disagreed with my position. And because there was actual kind of friendship and relationship uh, there, we were able to have those conversations. That, that's not a guarantee that you're always going to have those conversations and they're going to go well. But I do think there's a tendency in which we, we have these conversations and we observe these conversations in contexts where there's an audience uh, like social media. And the tendency and the incentive is to play to your team not to actually engage with a, with a real human being. And the tendency is to, to view them simply through the lens of this political or divisive topic that we're talking about and not to understand them as a, as a whole person. Um, and when we actually engage and get to know someone on a personal level, it is, it is so much harder, uh, even when we disagree, to hate them. Hmm. Um, so and, and my... Uh, my experience going to Harvard Law School, um, also I interned at International Justice Mission in D.C., which is a, uh, the world's leading anti-slavery uh, organization uh, staffed entirely by Christians. Uh, many of them uh, that I worked with directly in the government relations department were Democrats, which was totally new for me, broke all the categories in my head at the time um, as a senior in college. And... Um, when you are praying with people and living and in community with them, um, it's so much harder to hate them uh, both ways. Yeah. And a big part of the problem of polarization is that we just hate all these people we've never met all the time. And we don't actually know them and we never actually get to, to walk in their shoes or talk to them. And I think doing that work, that preliminary work, um, knowing them but also being known, that's the best bet. It's not a guarantee. It's the best bet uh, to actually be able to have you know, a conversation where they know that your disagreement does not um, negate your, your love and care for them. Mm-hmm. And it's incredible how much uh, genuine love and care for someone takes yeah. the edges off of a disagreement on an issue of policy or politics. Amen. Amen. Let's give it up for Alex Harris. <laughs> Brother, thank you. Um, I'm going to write you in in uh, 2024. Um, but yeah, thank you. You 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 equipped us, brother, to be more um, just faithful in our engagement with politics as Christians. So, thank you for listening to our Redemption Institute podcast. You can learn more about Redemption Institute or any of our other ministries at redemptionparker.org.